Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Um, this morning, we're not going to come to the most difficult uh, passage of Romans. You have to, if you know Romans at all, you have to know that that is the statement where he... The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated, quoting from the Old Testament. But the word that we're focusing on today in this text is the word predestination. And I think it's so easy for us to You know, in marriage, some of you are married, some aren't. But you know that in marriage, there are times where, you know, really, you don't want your husband touching you. Your guard is up. You're angry. You may even be bitter. And this is not a time for displays of affection. And you know that times like that are also not a good time to resolve a conflict. Because if we're angry and bitter and touchy, uh, our reasoning faculties, our, our logic, is not at its most uh, excellent. In other words, with emotions come an inability to think fairly and to grant your opponent their argument or to see the parts of it that are right, right? Well, when we hit predestination, and and that's actually the word that we're on today, when we hit this, uh, it just is obnoxious. Because it violates every every sense of fairness that we have, you know? It's just like, no, just no. You know, just no, you know? Um... And I would be so bold as to say that those of us here who think we're most cool with it, hey, I'm cool with that, you know, no, I love it, are probably the ones who are the best liars here. Because after all, the doctrine of predestination is intended to relegate us, and I don't know many people in the Western world, at least, that are okay with being relegated even when it's being relegated by God. And so often the people who say, yeah, I'm reformed in my doctrine, I believe in predestination, are the people who have never really thought about it. It's just a spitting contest between them and Arminians, and and they know how to carry out a spitting contest. You know? But I really wonder how many of us have truly eaten this word of God and found it sweeter than honey. I mean, honestly. During the beginning of the service, I went to talk to one of our pastors. He was talking about how much more precious, he used to be an Arminian, how much more precious it was. And he he had tears coming out of his eyes as he talked about how precious this doctrine is to him. Now, why would a man have tears coming out of his eyes talking about predestination? 
Well, the, the reason is, this is a man who is so holy that he knows his sin. And so he knows that the only hope for him is God. But most of us aren't that holy. Would you agree with me? Most of us think that actually all things being equal, we, you know, she's probably not going to have anybody better ask her to marry him. And if we're divorced, it was her fault or his fault. And, you know, really, the United States is a nation of, you know, fat, rich, complacent, belligerent, proud, bombastic people, much like Donald Trump. But I'm Chinese. What's my point? Well, my point is that even people who claim that they're reformed in doctrine, even people who would say that the Westminster Standards are their thing, rarely have a knowledge of their sin and rarely fear God. And so predestination isn't actually precious to them. And so what they really would prefer is that I would just skip over this today and move on because we have this addition to finish and then there's a whole lot more to finish. And, you know, we need all the people we can get, which really means we need all the money we can get. And, you know, the story of a lot of churches is the story of a pastor who is very committed to the Word of God, but then has a building program. And so the preaching becomes what, what you can refer to as pro forma. It seems to be vital, but there's a certain vitality lacking. You know, they'll preach the doctrine of predestination, but in such a way that anybody that disagrees will leave thinking they agree. Are you with me? You know, threading the needle without having all those little parts of the thread that split out as you try to thread it, you know. You know? <laughs> Do any of you sew? <laughs> you know. And so really this morning, I want you, as we come to the text, to God's word, I want you to feel the thrust, first of the book of Romans, then of Romans 7 and Romans 8, and then of Romans 8, 28 to 30. Because this is all connected. And it has a point. And if we begin to, to patronize it and to say, there, there, nice doggy, down, doggy, down, 
okay? And, and chill out about it, Tim, and let's soft sell predestination in such a way that it makes much of us and little of God. You know, and, and really, Tim, you have to be so, you know, direct. You know, something hilarious happened right before I came in here. So there was somebody in the first service. We went in the office to talk, a bunch of us. And this person was having real problems with the doctrine of predestination that God chooses us, right? And so we were talking. We talked about half an hour. And it was clear that this person had some real objections to predestination, right? And I love this. I love it when you have real objections to God's word. I I love it because it's the point of growth, you know? I love argument. You all know that, right? You all know. I love argument, not because I like to win, but because I love that point where the muscles break down and there's pain, because without pain, there isn't gain, okay? And so when people get mad at the Bible, I love it because they're in play. And I love people that are in play, right? Okay, now, so we're sitting there for half an hour. She's been in play. She's, she doesn't, nope, nope. Now, she's not contrarian, but she clearly doesn't agree with predestination, right? Right? I mean, we can all understand this, right? And then at a certain point, she talks about another church that she was going to, because I started to quote the Westminster Standards, and, and she, oh, yeah, I learned them. I went to this other church. Their whole membership class, class was the Westminster Standards. And, <laughs> and so, of course, my ears perk up. What am I thinking? I'm thinking, oh, that's interesting. So, um, okay, you went through a whole membership class. It was all the Westminster Confession and, and Catechisms. A whole membership class. Oh, this is wonderful. And she said, so I went through all of that, and I didn't have any problem with it. And I'm thinking, dude, how do you do that? How do you go through the Westminster Standards? It's the principle of your church. It is what you teach the members, not just the elders and the deacons. And someone who's opposed to predestination goes through it fine. How does that happen? Listen, when we preach the word of God and the truth of God in such a way that people can swallow it without feeling the pain and without repenting, without getting angry, it's despicable. God is not a lapdog. I, I can't stand little rat-think dogs. You know, I just can't. But let me say something else. God is not a black lab. Because black labs are about as agreeable, actually more agreeable than little rat think dogs. God is, is the most intense father you have ever conceived. And the very beginning 
of the truths that Romans gives to us is that God will have his perfections demonstrated, visible, and those perfections are not to be played with. And you take his omniscience, he knows everything. You take his omnipotence, he's all-powerful. You take all his perfections, and all of them are perfect. And over here you have his justice, and over here you have his mercy. And God is not going to silence his justice to placate his mercy. Do you understand this? All God's attributes, being perfect, exist in perfect harmony with each other perpetually, from eternity past to eternity to come. God's justice and his mercy never fight with each other. That's how we think of it. Well, God, really, aren't, isn't your mercy going to win? Aren't you really love? And in the end, doesn't your love, doesn't it, like, get everybody? Well, you can see that Jesus talks about the worm that never dies with hell, right? So you know it doesn't actually get everybody. So then we come up with all these schemes where God wants to, (laughs) but can't. Okay, he wants to, but he can't. And all these schemes are so rationalistic, they're so logical, that they do violence to Scripture. No, God's love does not trump his justice. God's justice will be visible for all eternity through his judgment of those who killed his son. Remember, Jesus tells the story and he says, you know, what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do to those those, uh, servants of his who killed his son when he sent them? And we know very well what God will do. And there will be no sin and no failure. There will be no absence of his love when he condemns, okay? And so now, before we read our text, let me remind you where we are in the book of Romans. We're at Romans chapter 8, and the whole book of Romans has endlessly been saying, One thing, and the thing it's saying is, you are not your own hope. You are not capable of saving yourself. All your best efforts to save yourself are filthy. Even when you are a Jew and you look down on the Gentiles and think that because you don't do the sins of the Gentiles, which are gross, that you're better. No, that makes you worse. The whole book of Romans has been endlessly slamming our tendency to think well of ourselves and to get us to repent of that and to think well of God. Can we please think well of God? Can we please come back to fearing God? Can we please have large thoughts about God and small thoughts about ourselves? And that's the beginning of salvation. 
That's the beginning of repentance. Okay? Okay? And then the Apostle Paul embroiders on the theme, or macrames on the theme, or, or, I don't know, something bigger than thread and rope. He like, you know, what's that word Hannah was looking for? Uh, fractals. He fractals on the theme. <laughs> you know, he just embroiders and he sews and he just, it's like, it's an incredible house he's building. It has incredibly thick walls, high turrets. There's, it's unbelievable fortress of the glory of God. That's what the book of Romans is doing. And we have arrived at the point in the book where the Apostle Paul is trying to deal with us and our resistance, not so much to God's salvation of us, but to God's sanctification of us. So in this book, you'll, you'll move into the sanctification in the second half, okay? And it'll get ethical on you. It'll tell you, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do, do this. But what's happened is he's, he's dealt with the issue of man's hopeless condition. And then he has tried to cut off every single hope we can have that's even the tiniest bit in ourselves, right? But then he arrives at the fact that we're scandalized that we are in pain even though we're Christians, all right? Are you with me? And it's a scandal to us. And so he stops and he deals with us very tenderly as sheep. And so here is uh, Romans 8, 28 to 30. We'll be in it another couple of weeks. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. And we, this is, this is Christians, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And the, these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth, Father, and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so looking at the big picture in Romans, looking at where we are in Romans, explaining to you that the scandal is that we have pain in our Christian life. The scandal is that it is difficult to be made holy as Christians. Let me talk a bit about sheep. Sheep are timid, and sheep are also stupid. Okay? Sheep are timid, sheep are stupid. My father uh, wrote a prayer, and in the prayer, and by God's kindness, I, I got to read it. It was supposed to be private, but I got to read it. And the prayer is, Lord, I am such a stupid sheep. Sheep are stupid. Sheep are not on guard against danger. That is the shepherd's job, right? Hyenas, raccoons, and crows don't need shepherds. Right? 
driving out of the driveway earlier this week, and for the umpteenth time, I wish that just once a crow would be stupid, because I'd love to kill one. <laughs> I've never seen a dead crow. Never. I've never seen a crow roadkill. Crows are unbelievably smart, and they're on guard. So I went through this flock of 100, 200, all on the driveway. I didn't get one. (laughs) Hyenas, raccoons, and crows do not need shepherds. They're on guard. Sheep, though, are easy pickings. Sheep need protection. And part of this is that sheep are surprised by pain. The Christian is a sheep. He is a lamb, a ewe, or a ram, all still sheep. The Christian needs a shepherd, partly because the Christian is surprised by pain. Christians are surprised when their marriage to another Christian involves pain. Christians are surprised when their relationship with other people in small group causes pain. Christians are surprised when they are redirected or disciplined by their shepherd's rod and staff. When our Lord, the chief shepherd, uses his rod and staff on them, those whom the Lord loves, he chastens, but it's the rare Christian who, when he is the subject of God's discipline, testifies to his small group that Sunday, Jesus, rod and staff, they comfort me. I mean, come on, admit it. Has anybody said that in your small group? I mean, they've implied it. They maybe have said something like it. But we don't go around bragging about how we're so comforted by God's discipline. No, no, no. Let's be honest. Nor, when redirection or discipline come from the under-shepherd's hands, are they well-received. Sheep are surprised by pain, whether that pain comes from their Lord Jesus himself, the chief shepherd, or it comes from an older woman of the church, from a pastor or an elder. Turning them around from the wrong way, redirecting them back to the green pastures. Sheep aren't on guard against danger. Sheep need protection. Now listen. This is the reason the church of the Western world is in the condition it is. People used to admit that they need shepherds. And nobody today thinks they need a shepherd. You know? They think of church membership as them sort of engaging in a little noblesse oblige. You know, well, they have some uptight thing that requires me to say something or other to somebody or other. And, you know, I don't see it in the Bible! You know, and that's about as deep as we get. But the the thing is, we're all very confident that we're able to take care of ourselves. You know? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And guess what? You're not. Yesterday, I got my favorite uh, like ever on Facebook. And it was because I put up this, basically a quote from a, one of these sailing books I write, where a grunt 
you know, in, in the Marines, a grunt is, is the guy that actually does the killing. A grunt on a sailing vessel was talking to the other sailors, and he said that we take care of the ship and the captain takes care of us. And Joe, who is a retired captain in the Navy, gave it a thumbs up. Now you look at Joe. How old are you, Joe? <laughs> plus. So Joe is 83 plus. Those are his words. And he's married to a formidable authority. If any of you know Eleanor, she is a formidable authority. And he is her husband. So he's a captain in the Navy, and he is such a man that he is married to such a woman. Are you with me? Okay. And Joe liked that statement, because I went on to say that the sheep do the work of ministry in the church, and the pastor cares for the sheep. How do you figure that you have a captain married to Eleanor? who publicly says yes. Well, you know the reason. The reason is that Joe, despite being a shepherd of a ship, freely confesses that he needs a shepherd of his soul. And not just Jesus, he needs the church. Are you with me? Are you with me? How do you have such humility? Well, you remember Jesus said to the man who said, no, Lord, you don't need to come to heal my servant. You just say the word. You don't even have to come. For I am a man who is under authority. And Jesus said, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. It's only insecure and weak people who deny that they need a shepherd. So I have three categories of tweets and Facebook posts I do. I try to teach through it, okay? And one category is very popular. And another category is very popular. There's a third category that's just not popular at all. And that's called Good Shepherd. And do you know who in our church, there are actually three people. Uh, One of them isn't here today, so. One of them is your son, Joe. There are three people in this church who constantly, when I talk about the importance of shepherds, for the people of God, say yes, 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 right? And I don't think about it, but I notice after months, I notice who those three people are. One of them is Joe. And the amazing thing that Joe keeps saying yes to it is that Joe is actually bright. And he's handsome. And it's just so demeaning for him publicly to admit that he needs a shepherd. I mean, a young man in, in, in the full prime, right? And then who are the other two? Well, the other two are Linda and Margaret. Linda and Margaret are constantly confessing publicly that they need a shepherd and they love their shepherd. So are Linda and Margaret weak? Are they insecure?
sheep need protection. But even as sheep need protection, they are always straying because sheep are not aware that they're always straying and need protection. As a matter of fact, although sheep are timid, they are unaware of danger. And so pain surprises sheep. Pain surprises sheep even and maybe especially when it comes from the hand, the mouth, the rod, and staff of their beloved shepherd. I thought he loved me. How could he do this to me? How could he say that to me? How could she say that to my wife? How could she say that to my teenage daughter? Pain surprises sheep. Or to put it another way, sheep are scandalized by pain. The word scandal comes from the notion of stumbling over something. It's a stumbling block. Pain to sheep is a stumbling block. We do actually expect, in fact, we require that God take us to heaven on beds of ease. And thus it is that we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8 being calmed and reassured by the Holy Spirit through the shepherd, the Apostle Paul. This entire section of the letter to the Roman church is the Apostle Paul shepherding work, reassuring the sheep that the pain of the Christian life, the pain of sanctification, the pain of persecution, the pain of the Lord's discipline. The pain is to be expected and that it's good. This is the context for Romans 8.28, and we know, and we, all Christians, know that God causes all things to work together for good. What things are all things that work together for good? <clears throat> well, he's not talking about ice cream and lollipops. He's talking about suffering and pain. All things work together for good to those who love God. And immediately when we hear that to love God, we start saying, well, do I love God? Yes, I have a passion for God. Lawrence, do you have a passion for God? Yeah, Tim, I have a passion for God. I have a passion for God too, Lawrence. David, do you have a passion? Yeah, we have a passion. Paul, do you have a passion for God? Yes, I have a passion for God. And so when we hear all things work together for good to those that love God, we know that if things are going to work good for us, we better be able to say we love God, right? And so, of course, we go right back into everything that the Apostle Paul has been trying to cut off from us, which is we go back trying to prove to ourselves that we qualify. Yeah, I love God. You know, I'm all about that. You know, loving God is what I've always been. I have such a passion for Jesus Christ. Well, the Apostle Paul, he understands this. He knows we're, we're squirrely and weasels. He knows that's thrown us into paroxysms of trying to justify ourselves with our love of God. And so then he says this, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is the Apostle Paul. He's always relegating us. He's always breaking us down right when we thought we could stand. And so we're all proving that we love God. And he says, all right, here is a, another qualification those who love God, those who are called, 
those who love God are called according to his purpose, okay? And we go, oh my goodness. I might be able to say I love God, but (laughs) called according to his purpose, that sounds theocentric. You know? That sounds monergistic. You know, that sounds pretty God, God, God thingy. That doesn't sound me thingy. You know, that doesn't sound like, <coughs> I don't think God knows how important self-esteem is. And so the Apostle Paul realizes that he's just thrown a huge uh, sabbat, okay, which is a wooden shoe that they used to throw into the machinery. And so sabotage is to throw a wooden shoe in the machinery, and it breaks up the machinery. He's just thrown, he's sabotaged our notions of ourselves and how salvation works by saying those who are called according to his purpose. And so then he goes off on a tangent, right? And this tangent is what we referred to last week as the golden chain, all right, the four parts. And here it is, for those whom he foreknew. So, all things work together for good. He's been talking about suffering. He's been talking about nobody being able to be glorified and to take on the image of Christ unless they suffer like Christ. And sheep are scared. Sheep are scandalized by pain. And so the Apostle Paul stops and he says, for we know that all things work together for good. And then he thinks, hmm, okay, okay. I better help them out on this. Because they're going to think that if it's people who love God, they just need to work on their love. You know? He says to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose... And he watches the sheep, and the sheep are going, oh, okay, fine. Uh, Those uh, who are called according to his purpose, am I called? You know, am I part of the purpose of God? He says, okay, let me open up that a little bit to you. And he says, for those, right, for those whom he foreknew. And last week we saw that here we have the first phrase of this golden chain, and we saw that those God knew beforehand, this was a knowledge and relationship. You can really translate it for loved. This is a biblical use of knowledge that we said is like intimacy in a marriage. Did you know her biblically on your wedding night? Yes, I knew her biblically, okay? In other words, I set my affection on her, and I became one with her. I knew her, all right? And we said, this is the understanding of this, that God has set his affection on you, and he knows you, all right? But again, we are perpetually perpetually trying to insert ourselves into the process of salvation because we're perpetually proud and we're perpetually afraid of God instead of having faith. And so even with this foreknowledge, it's been one of the principal ways that people across history have tried to insert themselves into 
this process of salvation. And so what everybody tends to say, I mean, there's a number of ways of being squirrely with foreknowledge, but what everybody tends to say is, well, that foreknowledge is God anticipating that we would put our faith in him. And on the basis of seeing that he, foreknowing that we would put our faith in him, he then predestines us, which is the next in the theme. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. All right, now, Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is, first of all, it doesn't say that God foreknew our faith, that God foreknew we would have faith. All it says is God foreknew me. You remember what I said last week? Why did God foreknow me? Why did God predestine me? You remember what the answer to that is? Just because. There is no better answer. Because. Because he chose me. That's it. That's it. But we say, no, 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 there has to be something in me that caused him to choose me. And so what we typically say it is, is that we put our faith in God. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem is that everywhere through Scripture, universally, faith is directly stated to be a gift of God. And so we read, for instance... In, uh, let me flip over. We read in Ephesians, which is uh, not a defective book any more than uh, the book of Romans. We read in Ephesians, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Okay? And you can find many places in Scripture where... It is explicitly, clearly said that faith is a gift. And so the importance of this is, if you have an inclination to say God's foreknowledge is anticipating that we are going to put our faith in him, what does that do for you? It doesn't remove the agency, the exclusive agency of God, because that faith is a gift. Okay? We must stop trying to defend God against accusations that come to him from people who claim to know unbelievable numbers of things about fairness and justice. They know nothing about the justice and fairness of God. All they have the ability of doing is bringing to bear on Scripture and God's prophets who preach their expectations of how God should measure up. And oh my goodness, honestly. I mean, (laughs) put yourself in my shoes. Don't you think probably I, a long time ago, resign myself to not be the hero of the east side of Bloomington? I mean, am I really supposed to care what they think about my ethics and morality? Am I supposed to care what they think about God's truth in Scripture? I mean, I care on one sense that I love them and I want them to bow to Jesus. (laughs) But am I trying to preach for their approval? 
are we going to use the thoughts of sophisticated intellectuals to judge God's holy words? This is the reason I'm against neutering the text of Scripture. Why should Scripture be okay for feminists? The most hopeful thing to a feminist is that Scripture will will absolutely destroy their ideology. So why make it soft? You know, why soften it at certain key places? What about... What about Jews? The most important thing for Jews is that they come to their Messiah. And so why soften what the Gospel of John says about the Jews and their crucifixion of Jesus? I mean, can you imagine if you had a mother or father who was always telling you that everything you did was wonderful? (laughs) What a... What a hellacious proposition, you know, to to never have your parents rebuke you or discipline you, right? I mean, oh my goodness, that would be awful. Can you imagine if scripture was written in such a way that it just confirmed all the prejudices and vanity of the Western world? But that's not what Scripture does. Scripture consistently, from the very beginning, destroys every moral, every self-righteousness, every ideology of the Western world. So I put up a tweet this week quoting um, Calvin, saying that the whole purpose of clothing is after the fall, the image of God was corrupted in man, and so we have to wear clothes to hide it. And what were those clothes made of by God immediately? They were made from the skin of animals. And it's hopeless right there. How are you going to have Peta and me agree? You know, people for the ethical treatment of animals. You know, God himself killed the animals to clothe man. And it's just clothing. And we haven't even gotten to the eating. If we're going to superimpose on Scripture the values and commitments and ideologies and moralism and ethics of the Western world, okay, and we're going to require that our pastors package Scripture in such a way that it appears that God himself is sensitive to our concerns, Predestination is the first thing to go, maybe even before feminism. I think it's the largest hurdle in Scripture because there's absolutely no way that you can come through with large thoughts of yourself and small thoughts of God. And we already have seen week after week after week, this is the 51st week, You know, I sum it up by saying, God actually is not bothered. God is God. You think you worship God, and you require that God allow there to be synergy between you and him in the process of salvation. 
you have no clue who you are and how hopeless you are. But the minute, the minute you admit what a piece of work you are, then you have fellowship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have fellowship with me. You have fellowship with every other person in this church. And it doesn't make an ounce of difference what color you are, what sex you are, what age you are. What you're, it, none of it matters. It doesn't matter what language you speak. Because all of us are hopeless in Christ. And we've given up trying to say it's partly of us and partly of God. That's the meaning of predestination. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Why did he predestine? Remember? Who knows? Just because. Is there something in me that warrants God predestining me? No. There's nothing. First Peter two nine for you are what? You are a chosen people. You are a chosen people. And you can either get angry at that or you can love it. And to the degree that you get angry at it, what it demonstrates is that you do not yet know yourself nor God. I was, you know, all of us go through asking ourselves the question, Do I belong to God? Am I truly a Christian? And if we've had any preaching that is biblical, the next question we ask is, has God chosen me? But we know that that's a dead end, right? How do we know the secret counsel of God? How do we know God's decrees? We can't try to think about that. What we realize is that Jesus has said to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we look at ourselves and we say, I am weary. I'm so, so heavy laden. And he says he'll give me rest. And then this little gremlin in our brain goes, yeah, but did he chose you? And right there, two paths diverge in a yellow wood. One path goes to, well, I'm going to have devotions today. Have you ever noticed that men who are middle-aged and malakoy, effeminate, soft, lazy, playing video games, alcoholics, have you ever noticed that those men If their parents are Christians and they claim to be Christians, have you ever noticed that they're always saying to you, this time it's different? Have you ever noticed that? There's always 
fresh hope. This time, I really want to have devotions. This time, I've done this and I've done that, and I never did that before. Now, what is that? That is putting your hope in yourself. I suppose you could say that they're using what's new as a testimony that this time it's of the Holy Spirit. But you never get that feeling. You always get that feeling that they're taking their own pulse and trying to see whether or not they really mean it this time. And it's hopeless. It's hopeless. We cannot make God choose us by having devotions tomorrow. By apologizing, whatever it is, by getting a job and holding it, like now Paul uh, has done. You know, for how many years now has he held a job? We're all so proud of him. But God doesn't choose Paul because he finally holds down a job. Paul chooses, I mean, God chooses Paul because Paul casts himself on the mercy of God. And so if you want to know if you're a Christian and you hear Jesus saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, take my yoke upon me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. And you say, I don't have rest in my soul. And I say, well, come, come to him. And you say, well, I don't know if he chose me. Well, Jesus didn't stop his appeal for you to come to him and make some essay on the nature of the interrelationship of God's will and decrees and foreknowledge. And you say, well, then what did he put it in the Bible for? Why is it there? It's so discouraging. Why would I come to Jesus if it's all a function of his choice, right? And my answer is, because you're weak and heavy laden. That's why you come. Because you completely empathize with Peter. When he says, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? I love the scene where the disciples know what's coming. Jesus has told them they don't want to listen. I must go up and they're going to they're kill me. And I love this scene where they finally look at each other. <laughs> I just love it. And they say, well, what the heck, let's do it. You know, roll them. You remember that? Where the disciples, they know it's going to turn into a bloody mess. And they say, let's go with them. You know? You come because you're weak and heavy laden, and Jesus has said he will give you rest. He has said that if you take his yoke on you, that you will learn of him. He's meek and humble of heart. And he says, you will find rest for your soul. You say, but am I chosen? And I say, if you come to him, you're coming because he chose you. And you say, but how do I know if... And I say, do you actually have to know if you're chosen before you come? Let me tell you this. If you are meek and humble of heart, he's chosen you. If you are burdened and you can't bear it, he's chosen you. If you hear him say come, he has chosen you. 
And you say, well, how do you know that? And I say, because he commands those who are weak and heavy laden to come. Are you weak and heavy laden? Are you weak and heavy laden? Are you? Honestly. Then take his yoke upon you and learn of him, for he is meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. Do you hear that? Predestination is either a horror or the most incredible comfort you'll ever find. Because it is the final nail in the coffin of our self-determination and autonomy. Last night I was reading a book called After Virtue. Some, any, any of you heard of it? And it's, a, uh, it's Jürgen gave it to me to read. And it's a fascinating book on the nature of uh, morality and ethics, right and wrong, in the Western world today. And the premise of the book is that after the Enlightenment, the entire project in the Western world is to remove virtue from the narrative of the fall and of the law of God. Okay? And so everybody still has the residue that the Western world had built its laws upon, which is scripture and which is the fall, you know. But they're trying to, uh, to remove, to denature it from the nature of God's universe. They're trying to remove God. They're trying to remove sin. They're trying to remove the fall. They're trying to remove Adam and Eve. And so what they're trying to do is come up with should and ought without God. This is largely the project of Hillsdale and all libertarians. Okay? And they just, they just, you know, utilitarianism. You know, since, since happiness is good and since suffering is bad, let's come up with a system that optimizes happiness and minimizes suffering. So that what's good, what's right, what ought to be done is the thing that leads to the greatest amount of good for the greatest number of people. And so John Stuart Mill just waxes elephant on that, you know? And it explains most of the session meetings in Presbyterian churches. <laughs> that was for you, Richard. <laughs> and then you go to Kant. You go to Hume. You go to all the people who have been trying to come up with should and ought without God and without the fall. Okay, do you see the project? Why? Because all of them are post-enlightenment. And the enlightenment is about us having large thoughts about ourselves. And little thoughts about God. It is to remove God from the universe. You know, when I was a little kid, Sputnik went up. Any of you remember Sputnik? And right after Sputnik went up, the Soviet cosmonaut said something. Do you remember? Anybody? What? I went up and I did not see God. Wait, were you going to say that? Okay. 
Okay, wait, wait. You've got to tell everybody this. What was his name and what did he say? German Titov was the cosmonaut that was sent up and declared that when he went up into space, he did not see God there. And there was a political cartoon drawn in a country that still believed in God. And here he peered out of his space capsule and issued this blasphemy. And the spaceship was in the hand of God. You can't remove God from good and evil. You can't remove his character from his law. You can't be good without God. But with God, you can be righteous. Now, two more things will be done. Number one, what the Apostle Paul now does is he shows you the purpose of your suffering. Because he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then he gives the purpose of your predestination. And what is it? To become conformed to the image of his son. And that's where we're going to go next time. How are you conformed to the image of God's son unless you suffer? He suffered Do you think that you're going to become like him by not suffering? Remember, you're a sheep. Remember, suffering's scandalous to you. It's a stumbling block. It's like if he loved me, he'd protect me. No, it's actually the plan. You are to suffer. And the most difficult text of all of Scripture for me has always been this, which is in the book of Hebrews, where God says this. God says about his son, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he, Jesus, offered up prayers and petitions, and then do you remember what comes next? With fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission, and then this. Son, though he was, He learned obedience from what he suffered. You are not going to be able to be conformed to the image of God's Son unless you suffer. Okay. You just can't. I understand that you want to. I have been the subject, and so have the other pastors and elders, of endless headbutts from you. And they all amount to you wanting to go to heaven without suffering. And you can't. Okay, you can't. And honestly, because God loves you, he won't give you a choice. And the more you double down on avoiding suffering, the heavier it'll get. And so give it up. Ask yourself this. Do you want to be conformed to the image of Jesus? Do you want that? (laughs) And...
<laughs> you know, if you're going to tell the truth, let's be honest here, right? We should be honest. The answer is actually no. I don't want to become like Jesus. And the wonderful thing is, you've been chosen, and so you don't have a choice. (laughs) I mean, isn't that sort of the perfect description of the Christian life? No, I don't. No, no, no. You know? Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. Yes, 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 yes. You know? You want to oppose God's choice? You want to oppose suffering? Knock yourself out. Knock your socks off. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, my. Oh. And listen, your elders and your pastors are going to shepherd you faithfully so that you accept the discipline of God in your life. Do you hear me? Because they have faith for it, because they know you're called. And so they'll shepherd you until he takes over. All right? All right, now this is truly the last thing. I want to read to you something that Martin Luther wrote, because it's just perfect. So, you know, we hear this preached and we go, oh, Tim, can you please chill out a little bit and let this doctrine be something that we all go, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you really have to be so incisive and precise and, and invasive and, and, and pushy about it? You know, Do you really have to preach this? I mean, honestly, predestination, all right, it's in the Bible, but I mean, you know, think of how many people we need to have the money to finish our building. <laughs> Just a few facial ticks here. And it's always been our habit to backpedal and, and, and soft touch and, and, and mess up the truth of God in his word. Because we think we can help God by hiding some of the things he said, right? Are you with me? And so Erasmus, he and Calvin were far and away the greatest humanists at the time of the Reformation, but Erasmus had stayed Roman Catholic. And so Erasmus was arguing with Martin Luther. Opposite personalities, Erasmus was very um, sort of uh, scholarly, you know. Martin Luther was a brilliant scholar, but he wasn't sort of scholarly. He was kind of like a, uh, a grizzly bear hunter, bloody, larger than life, louder than life, married to a woman even more intimidating than Eleanor. Katie, Katie. You're not intimidating, but Katie was Eleanor. She intimidated her husband. And so these two men have this discussion, this debate, and the debate is over free will, and it's recorded in the book called The Bondage of the Will. And in the middle of it, Martin Luther takes apart... Erasmus, the erudite scholar Erasmus, who thought that even if this doctrine of election is true, it it shouldn't really be something that we talk about. It should be sort of hidden behind a modesty panel, right? And Erasmus has had it with him, and he writes this. 
he says, but if you believe the doctrines in debate between us to be the doctrines of God, so, you know, Erasmus, sometimes yeah, they're the doctrines, sometimes no, sometimes yeah, but you should hide them. So Luther says, but if you believe the doctrines in debate between us to be, as indeed they are, the doctrines of God, you must here say goodbye to all sense of shame and decency, thus to oppose them. In other words, come on, dude. If you really believe that it's true that God chooses us, then would you please say goodbye to all your attempts to to say that they're not true and to soft-pedal them? He says, Luther, I will not ask, where is the modesty of Erasmus gone? I won't ask you, where is your modesty gone? I'm not asking, where is your humility run off to? But which is more important, much more important, where, alas, are your fear and reverence of the deity? When you roundly declare, loudly declare, that this branch of truth, which he has revealed from heaven, is at best useless and unnecessary to know. Are you you all with me? What? Shall the glorious creator be taught by you, his creature? What is fit to be preached? And what to be suppressed? Is the adorable God so very defective in wisdom and prudence as not to know till you instruct him what would be useful and what would be pernicious? Or could not he whose understanding is infinite foresee previous to his revelation of this doctrine what would be the consequences of his revealing it? Till these consequences were pointed out by you? You cannot, you dare not say this. If then it was the divine pleasure to make known these things in his word and to bid his messengers publish them abroad and to leave the consequences of their so doing to the wisdom and providence of him in whose name they speak and whose message they declare. Who art thou, O Erasmus, that thou shouldst reply to God. Come on. He's right. You look at what has happened to the Roman Catholic Church since the days of Erasmus, when he thought a little tweak here and a little tweak there would be all that was necessary. And then all of a sudden, out comes the Council of Trent. And it solidifies every wickedness that the Reformers opposed. And you look at the five centuries since God sent Reformers to the Roman Catholic Church and they despised them with Erasmus, the very center of that despising. He was closest, and therefore he was furthest away. Humility. Humility. We can't save ourselves. We throw ourselves on the mercy of God. We confess that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We say that we're weak and weary and heavy laden. And then we find rest. And I'm going to end with this statement. 
The only way I have found personally that I can live with this truth, okay, of God's choice is to throw myself on the mercy of God. It's such a motivator for me to just throw myself on the mercy of God. Okay? And when I am tempted by Satan to think, well, what if he didn't choose you? Do you know what I do? I just say to myself, he might not have chosen me, but I've chosen him. Now, what does that mean? I can't choose him if he doesn't choose me. Well, you got those gremlins, those demons in your mind that are accusing you of not having true faith and of not being chosen. And this is what I say. I say, if I find out that God has destined me for hell, I will serve him. Do you get it? Though he slay me, I'm going to serve him. Okay? My hero in the Bible was the Syrophoenician woman. You know, she comes to be healed. Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, I only came for the chosen ones. Remember him saying that? And she says, yeah, but, and he says, "Uh uh-uh. He says, I'm putting the food on the table for the people of God. And she says, what? He's telling her, you aren't chosen. You realize this. And she says, yeah, but even the dogs get the crumbs off the table. And I'm, that's, not the, that's not you guys. It's not talking about you and your family. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you qualify. And so all of us can go to God and we can say, hey, dude. I mean, we don't call him dude. But we say, I'm, I'm just here for the crumbs. The crumbs are fine with me. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Would you please keep us from thinking that we are more merciful than you? that we are more loving than you, that we are more reasonable than you, that we're fairer than you, that we're more just than you, that we have greater faith. Father, drive us to despair in ourselves that we might cling only to the active and to the passive obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.